Welcome to Clarity, hosted by me, Larry McCannum. How are you feeling, Will? Did you have a good week? What's that suspicious look on your face? What's your angle here, Larry? What do you mean? There is no angle. Here I am, trying to extend an olive branch, and you've got to throw it in my face. How are we going to build this relationship if there's no trust? Oh, I trust you, Larry. I trust you to be a jerk to me every single episode. Hey, yeah, yeah. We're moving along. Let's cut to the second part of my interview with Vanessa. Can you elaborate for the listeners who don't know you personally what industry you do work in? Sure. I do nonprofit fundraising. For anyone who doesn't know, it's predominantly a female industry, at least in my experience and in attending conferences for that industry. I've found there's more women. I don't know what the exact percentage is, but it feels like it's something like 70, 75 percent women. Are there any elements that you've experienced throughout your career that have made you uncomfortable as a woman? Sure. Um, Not you. I'm talking to Vanessa right now. (laughs) I think when you're a young woman starting in any industry and trying to learn what your role is, sometimes you can find yourself in positions where you feel uncomfortable in a situation and you're not sure if that's something that you did because you're young and this is a new job Um, you're just learning how to be an adult working or is it something that's just not right as a fundraiser i have to engage with a lot of donors potential donors often at events that involve alcohol i don't really tend to drink at the events just because i kind of see it as like i'm working But I always have a glass of wine just there. It makes the other people more comfortable to see that you're even holding a drink. I don't tend to drink very much. Those donors, those prospective donors, for them it's a social function. They're there to connect, but they're not searching for a certain outcome, right? So I'm trying to meet people, trying to decide, are they interested in my organization? Do they have the capacity to donate to that organization? And how much do I think that they would be willing to support? So I'm there with an objective. The prospects or whoever they are, they're there socially. So they're drinking. Older men or just men will sometimes put their arm on you, not in a way that's especially inappropriate, but in a way where it does kind of make you feel a little uncomfortable. There have been a few times where I was really upset, where I thought something was absolutely out of hand. And in that case, I brought it up to my supervisor. There was a time that I was working a golf tournament, for instance, and we, I don't know why they had us do this, but I was a young advancement officer, so fundraising, and I was responsible for providing the alcoholic beverages at the event. They thought it would be a nice way for us to engage with the donors as we're providing alcohol. 
But the more that these men drank at this golf tournament, the just more crass that they became. And I remember somebody hollered at me from far away, and he was an older man, so I just assume he's coming from a different time from a different era but I remember he said oh the beer bitches are here and that was so upsetting it was so just just disgusting understandably (laughs) I I don't again I think like you give well too much credit I don't think there's any era where that was an appropriate statement Mm -hmm. certainly not to a professional working the event you're attending Something about golf tournaments, I think. I remember when I was a college student, I worked in the events office for my university. And I also had to work a golf tournament. And it's mostly men who golf, in my experience, for these events. And there was another group of older men who offered myself and another female student. I think they were kidding, but they started saying, well, how much could I pay you to do X, Y, Z sexual for us. And we we were like 19, 20. We just laughed it off and, you know, we're excited when they moved on to the next hole. But looking back on it, it was very inappropriate, but it was also a tough position to put a young woman in. You're in a position where you don't understand how big of a donor is this person to the institution. Am I going to look bad? Like, if this person is upset, if they they don't want to donate again, and should I not stand up for myself? So it is tough to make that call because you feel like you have a job to do. But when there's something that's completely inappropriate, now I'm old enough to know, hey, that's not right. And I need to take action to make sure that doesn't happen to anybody else. But when you're 19, 20, or in my first job, I was early 20s still, still trying to sort it all out. And you don't know. That situation sounds grossly inappropriate. You've gone to a supervisor with past grievances. Are there any other means of dealing with these kind of negative situations? Essentially, a support group within your... Workplace? Yeah, within the workplace. Are there any avenues that you feel comfortable that you could take one of these situations, explain how you felt, and see some resolution. Sure. So because I was really active or have been really active in my workplace, I think there are two avenues. If you didn't feel comfortable going to your supervisor or if it involves your supervisor or a colleague, the institution will always advise you to go to HR, right? But people are distrusting of HR. They're there to protect the company, the institution. So there's this perceived distrust in them. One thing that I found at my workplace and I know exists in a lot of other workplaces is something called an ombudsperson. It used to be an ombudsman, but since men and women fill that role, it's an ombudsperson. O-M-B-U-D-S. Ombuds. Uh, (laughs) But a lot of companies have this group of people who they're supposed to be non-partial. So they're not connected to human resources, but they can guide you They'll often be mediators between you and a colleague if you don't feel like you can address a grievance with them directly or you'd prefer to have a non-partial person as part of the conversation. They're, I think, legally not allowed to share the information with HR. If I had a situation where I felt like I could not go to my supervisor, that's who I would go to, I think. And that's who I would encourage other people to go to, and I have. Personally, I've never heard of that, so thank you for sharing that information. Yeah, I think had I not been very active at my workplace, I wouldn't have known. 
I don't know that companies necessarily do a very good job of educating people on what to do when you have grievances. I think they just hope grievances never happen, <laughs> that it will never get to that point. But really what it does is it makes employees often feel like when something does happen, that there is nobody they can turn to. So if your company's lucky enough to have something like that, I think research it, share it with everybody, figure out what other avenues are available. I think that's fantastic advice. To return to, unfortunately, that negative situation you had, I think a key element there is a discrepancy in power, which is what you saw a lot with Weinstein and these entertainment allegations, where one individual had so much more power than the other that it grossly warps how the victimized individual feels like they can respond. Hmm. There's all these things blocking them. What, am I going to lose my job? Am I even in my right to speak out on this? I don't know how important this person is. And I think that's the heart of what makes these situations so bad. Right, exactly. By speaking out, you don't want to start a domino effect that will cause you to potentially lose your job or will make you just look bad. It may not come back to you that way. If you approach it in a smart way, you just, you have that fear. So one thing I also just remembered is um, one of my first jobs as well. I This didn't happen to me, but it happened to a friend of mine where an older male colleague, and I think we just gave him the benefit of the doubt again because we were young and he was much older and you think, oh, he's from a different era. Like he didn't mean anything by it, but he slapped her ass. He must have been in his 60s. She was really early 20s, like possibly her first job. And she had to work with him every day. And I think we just laughed it off because that was the only way we knew how to cope with it. We didn't know enough to be angry. But looking back at it, when I think on it, I get really angry that that was completely inappropriate. And no matter what era he was from or what he was used to seeing, you know, when he was a young man working. That's not the era we live in now. You keep saying, oh, he was from another era. Is that even a reasonable excuse for anything? I don't know. I think I, now I don't feel that way. But when somebody's that much older than you, they're like 40 years older than you, you think like, oh, that couldn't have been, I, I must have misconstrued that. It couldn't be sexual. You know, they're older than my dad. And so you kind of think like, oh, there's no way he meant it that way. We're colleagues, we're friendly. You assume there's a mutual respect. Speaking as a man, I would not make that assumption. What advice would you give a young woman, say a 19-year-old, who finds herself in a similar position? I think if they're lucky enough to have an older female mentor or family member, I think sometimes it helps to just talk it out. Because sometimes the more you talk it out, you realize that your initial way of coping with it might be masking the truth of the situation. And I think sometimes our initial reaction, it, mine, because I don't like confrontation, is just to brush it under the rug. I found it really interesting when you were talking about the Aziz Ansari story. And that story was, was challenging because you're trying to figure out well, it was challenging in many ways, but one thing I found interesting was that she initially, the woman, um, I don't remember her name. The pseudonym she gave was Grace. Grace. So when she initially came back from the date with Assis, 
she didn't feel that it was necessarily assault. It was only after talking with some of her female friends. And I think that's a natural way that women, we're communicators, we want to talk things out, and it helps us come to terms with how we actually feel. So I'm not saying that it was assault or I'm not weighing in on that, but I I do find that most women will need to talk it out with trusted friends, trusted mentors, family members, often before really figuring out how it, it really made them feel and why. Do you think that's always a beneficial process? Or is there a possibility that her friends potentially influenced her decision making and how she identified the incident between her and Aziz? I think it depends on the people you surround yourself with, what kind of advice they're going to give you. I've found it beneficial to have mentors who are slightly older than me, have experienced things in a different way, are a little bit higher up in their career, because I feel like they have a little bit more experience. They've seen more things. They may have experienced similar things. It's hard when you're only talking things out with people who are your same age. Not that that means that they don't have experience, but I know that that was some of the criticism that Grace came under from older females who were weighing in on the subject. I think that's true. And with the case of Babe.net, the whole purpose of that site is it's very young women discussing their issues. And I think that's important. Like I said, when I was young, I faced a lot of challenges and I wasn't equipped with the vocabulary, with the tools, with the resources to necessarily figure out how I really felt, what I could do about it. And so I think it's good to have conversations, but I think it's good to get a few different people in the mix when you're trying to sort out something that could really have repercussions for you and somebody else. That's wonderful. I think all of us would benefit from expanding our social circles. As Alex Marshall Brown mentioned in a previous episode, don't just tokenize another group. Truly have a dialogue. It may not always be easy. You may have fundamentally incompatible beliefs on certain issues, but I still think it's important that you don't just tolerate their viewpoint. You try to understand their perspective. Right. You mentioned when you had some of these unfortunate experiences, you felt the desire to brush it under the rug. Do you think victims have a responsibility to make sure the same thing doesn't happen to someone else? Now that I'm older, that's the driving force, right? It's you don't want that to happen to other people. And when I look back, it's not like those incidents ruined my life. It just makes you more aware of these things happen all the time in little ways and big ways. But that doesn't mean it's okay. I think my tendency to brush things under the rug is just, I want to move on, I don't think about it. But then when you start thinking about how it might affect other women, other people, I would never stand for that, seeing someone do that to a colleague of mine, whether they be a younger female, whether they be my same age, whether they be older, whether they be a man, it's never right. And so when I think about it in terms of how it affects other people and how I would never stand for it, seeing or hearing about someone doing that to somebody else, then it makes you feel like, oh, I should have said something. I think women, we just naturally have a tendency to just play things down when it's something like that. And I don't know if it's just socially because where we've come from, it's like, just don't make a big deal out of it. That's how 
older men are. It's not until you start thinking back on all the little incidents that you let slide that you realize like, oh, I'm still thinking that way. People are still in society today in a really liberal place like Los Angeles. Myself and people like me are still letting things slide. And that's one thing that I feel like these different movements, the Me Too movement, which I know now has been around for much longer than I realized thanks to this podcast. I think it helps you realize that it's happening everywhere. It's just pervasive. I think that ties back into what we were discussing earlier, where it can feel hard to change the world or even the country or your state or your city. And what gets me frustrated is that it takes this big moment like Harvey Weinstein to actually seem like it's possible to change anything. And I think it's horrible that we need an atrocity to foment change. Well, sometimes we need multiple atrocities because, yeah, we had Harvey Weinstein, but we had Bill Cosby just before that. And that was shattering, I think, for society, who, people who didn't know that somebody was capable of something like that. So, and same with all of the mass shootings, you know, we have them, they happen so frequently now, and the numbers are just so high that it's almost like one huge incident isn't enough to move the country. It has to be multiple. And even then, it's not enough. You know, how many black men have been unjustly murdered by the police, by others, and we still haven't resolved those issues. That's true as well. And with the case of the shooting in Las Vegas, I believe 58 people died. That's staggering. It seems unacceptable to me that no real change has resulted from that. What is it going to take? An entire school gets slaughtered? I mean, I don't know if it's... It's not social media, but how quickly we get the news. It's the news cycle. We move on to the next thing, and we don't really spend the time examining each incident. And I don't know if that's some of us just still brushing it under the rug, still trying to think the best in people and society and focus on like the happy things, or if we're just so self-absorbed that we're, if we're thinking it's not affecting me in this moment. I mean, it does make me reflect on how we started the conversation of, are you a feminist if you're not an activist? I'd like to hope that in all of our own ways, like we are speaking out. Maybe you don't, maybe you're not at the march, but if you see something in your workplace, in your daily life, and you don't stand for it, that's affecting small change one step at a time. I think as long as we're all willing to do that, like take any step that's available to you, then I think you're, you're an activist in your own way. I think that's an important distinction to make. That ties into integrity, where say you do attend the march, you've attended both marches, but then you witness sexual harassment in your workplace and you don't do anything about it. I think there's, there's almost a hypocrisy to that, where if you're not willing to stand up to the personal issues that you're witnessing, are you truly a member of this movement? Right. I think sometimes people get swept up in the moment of expressing that you're not satisfied, that change needs to happen, but then if you're not actually making changes in your day-to-day -day life or speaking out, then we're not where we need to be. I agree. Personally, I think that greed and money influences a lot of these policies. 
A big way that you can be an activist is don't support anyone who does not embrace the views you have of the world. Right. I think the problem nowadays is it's all conglomerates. So in one way or another, even if you don't think you're supporting a company, you probably are. They're just so tightly knit together. And I think Amazon owns everything now. <laughs> pretty close. Yes, Amazon has a lot of qualities I'm not a fan of. And they've had a lot of scandals in the past involving worker compensation, hours, all sorts of things. I think that's like what we were saying before, too, is when companies get so big or governments get so big, it's extra challenging to make sure that everything's being done with integrity, with care for everyone who's involved at that company or involved as a member of that society. The scope is so big that you lose sight of people as individuals. It's sometimes how I feel when I go to New York City, honestly, which is a city that I love. But there are so many people in such a tight area and they're always in your way. It's almost like people are obstacles. They're not seen as human beings. They're in your way trying to get to the subway. They're just objects. I totally agree with that sentiment. And it reminds me of an, a story that Will told me where he met a cowboy in Wyoming. And when he asked the cowboy if he'd ever live in a city like New York, the cowboy said, oh, no, no, way too many people. I just wouldn't be able to deal with th that concentration of people. I need my own personal space. And Will responded by saying, when you live in a small town, everyone knows your business. If you lived in New York City and you do not put an investment in your social network, you can really live alone. No one will know anything about you or have any idea what you're doing on a daily basis. Right. And, and I think it's kind of counterintuitive where, like you're saying, these crowds of people become just part of the scenery. They almost lose their agency as people. Right. And because you need that privacy, you need that space for your own well-being, you can't see everyone as a human being because that would take you acknowledging, making eye contact with every single person you pass. It would be draining. I mean, it would be nice. <laughs> uh, just a bit of a PSA. Do not make eye contact with New Yorkers. I'm going to repeat that. Do not make eye contact with New Yorkers. You will get stabbed in the neck. Maybe not anymore, but that's a big distinction I've noticed between Los Angeles and New York City. New Yorkers tend to perceive eye contact as a threat. Unless you have an immediate reason to engage with this person, you should not make eye contact. And even then, I think you should be a little wary. In Los Angeles, I have not noticed that tendency. And that's troubling for me because I'm from Los Angeles. So every time I pass somebody on the sidewalk, anywhere, in my, even in my car, like I... Well, maybe not so much in my car, <laughs> but whenever I pass someone, I'm looking for eye contact. I feel uncomfortable when I pass somebody on the street and we don't acknowledge each other. That's true. But I've also heard you avoid public transportation largely for that reason. Well, I avoid, <laughs> I don't avoid public transportation, but I have had instances where because you're in a confined space with strangers, you sometimes have some unpleasant interactions. <laughs> Uh, understandably. I think catcalling is another common occurrence. Mm -hmm. I think as long as everybody respects their space, your space, and that you're all sharing this bus ride, this subway ride, this Uber pool together, and you're respectful of each other's space and boundaries, then public transportation is great. 
I think there's always going to be individuals who encroach on your space or feel like they can. It's not that I'm opposed to engaging with people on public spaces. It's that sometimes there are people who it's like a one-sided interaction. They're not looking for a two-way dialogue. They're looking to yell at you or make you feel uncomfortable or shout obscenities at you, sexual innuendos. There's going to be those people. And I think when you live in a metropolitan area like Los Angeles, like New York City, you learn to kind of deal with it. But then that's another case where you're just kind of brushing it under the rug. Unfortunately, it's true. I was riding the bus the other day, and they did have a placard that said, sexual harassment will not be tolerated on the Metro. And then to their credit, they specified that sexual harassment is verbal, it's groping, it's unwanted contact. They lay out that it's a whole category of unwanted behavior towards an individual. But then where they lost me, they provide a counseling number for someone victimized by sexual harassment. I think that's a great thing, and I think you should provide that resource. But to me, it's strange that you're not addressing the root problem. You're only reacting to what happened. By giving counseling to a victim, you're not changing the aggressor at all. They're totally out of that equation. Right. I think some of that is just how do you detain that aggressor or how do you even confront them? I mean, if you're a small woman like myself and there aren't other people around to help you, you're trying to avoid putting yourself in a potentially riskier situation. Absolutely. I completely agree with that. And I think you need to carefully weigh any situation. But one thing that comes to mind that Alex Marshall Brown said is that there's a bystander syndrome. Where if you're alone on the bus late at night with an aggressive individual, I think you should behave purely for your own safety. If you're on a crowded bus at rush hour and someone's behaving extremely inappropriately, not something that's a little subjective, but they're grossly overstepping their bounds, everyone else needs to speak up too. Men, women, everyone. I think we have a responsibility as a society to make stands on stuff like that. I'm not saying you need to beat up the aggressor or hold them down or anything like that. But I think even saying like, hey, that's inappropriate. I don't know what relationship you have with this other individual, but I think there's a way that we can all speak up and that we should feel like we should speak up. And I think you're right. I think if you can get people around you to assist you, then maybe you can actually do something. It made me think of a time when I was in college and I was studying at the library on campus. And I was sitting kind of in an area where if somebody sat to my right, I would have been stuck between the wall and having to ask that person to move. And somebody did sit to my right. So I was writing a paper. I was really engaged in knocking this paper out. So I I sort of noticed when somebody, a man, sat down next to me. And I noticed that he didn't have a lot of materials, a lot of homework. He just had one sheet of paper that he set down on the table. But I kept writing my paper. I had a deadline to meet. And then I noticed out of the corner of my eye that he was turned almost completely facing me and that he wasn't at all looking at the paper that he had brought with him. He was just looking at me and he had his hands in his pants and he was masturbating. And I was in the middle of the library. It was full of students. It was full of, there were librarians. It was the middle of the day. It was a very well-lit library, but nobody was noticing this but me. 
I didn't know what to do because I was physically stuck. In order to leave where I was sitting, I would have had to face him and ask him to move, which I, I was just stunned. I, I didn't want to engage with him. I didn't know how to get help. <laughs> it was a really strange situation to be in. I kept thinking, should I stand up and make a scene? Should I say something? And I didn't. I, I was just kind of dumbstruck. I didn't act. I didn't say anything. I just waited for him to finish and leave. And then when he left, I, I mean, went down and I reported it to the front desk. Once I'd had time to kind of collect my thoughts and realize like, hey, that wasn't right. I need to speak up. And then it turned out that this man had done this to several other students. This wasn't his first time at the library. I don't know how the other students handled it, but it must have been handled in a way that it didn't solve the problem. He was a habitual library masturbator and he still hadn't stopped him. And thinking back, I wish I had had the courage to kind of stand up and make a scene and say like, hey, everybody look what's going on. This is completely inappropriate. This person needs to be stopped. But I was young. I didn't have the courage and I didn't want to make a scene have everyone think I was crazy. But when I realized that he had been doing this, I don't know how many times before, but enough that the librarians knew who he was. I wished I made a stand and stopped it because instead he probably came back a week later. That's truly terrifying. So sorry that happened to you. There's so many considerations in these moments. Like you're saying, he's physically obstructing your exit. My only advice would be, I've heard that if you yell, fire, a lot of people will pay a lot of attention to you. And my guess is that an individual like him does not want that attention. Perhaps if you yelled fire, he would have just immediately left. But maybe not. Maybe it would have escalated the conflict. You could have put yourself in danger. It's impossible for me to know. Say even it didn't escalate to the, the horribleness of what he did. Even if he sat next to you and just looked at you, that also was putting you in a very unfortunate position. He's already being aggressive. Whether he recognizes that or not, he's physically limiting your movement and staring at someone is an aggressive move. Someone you do not know, you should not just stare at them. And even in that case, I think it would be difficult for a lot of people, not just women, to stand up and say, hey, let me out of here. You're behaving inappropriately. Because again, I think that we've been conditioned as a society where we don't want to see conflict. And I think... In my experience, women tend to downplay those incidents. So, for example, Will, your wonderful producer. Uh, again, <laughs> debatable. <laughs> he was sharing a story where he recently entered a sauna and he had another man, it was a male-only sauna, stare him up and down when he was undressed and that it made him feel very uncomfortable. And my initial reaction, which was completely the wrong reaction, instead of saying, oh, I'm so sorry for how that made you feel, my thought was, well, yeah, how often does that happen to everybody else? You know, like, how often does that happen to me? It's just, of course, like, people are gonna be inappropriate like that. And that's not right. That's me justifying all of the little incidents that have happened in my life. You know, they're small. I'm lucky enough not to feel like I've necessarily been victimized. But when I think back on incidents like 
the library or the little things, people calling me things, saying really inappropriate comments to me. I just let them slide, you know, you let them slide, you let them slide, you let them slide. And then you realize at some point that you're not changing anything by letting it slide. I think that's true. Maybe that incident allowed Will to understand a bit what it might be like to be a woman in our society. Right. It was the objectification that kind of shook him. And I don't believe he's been back in that sauna. (laughs) I don't think so either, Larry. From what I understand, he didn't do anything about that either. No, I don't think he did. So I guess it's not just women who brush things off or want to avoid the conflict. I, I think it's just human nature. Human nature, I might disagree with, but I think how we're conditioned in society certainly discourages us from seeking conflict over something like that. We tend to find excuses or justify it. It's not that big a deal. Right. In the scheme of things, when people are being physically assaulted, sexually assaulted, it doesn't feel like a big deal to be leered at or catcalled or even to me in the moment of having somebody stare me down while they objectified me and masturbated in a public place. Like, it doesn't feel like as big a deal as the real horrors that are happening out there. So you brush it aside. That's actually something that impressed me so much about Tarana Burke, the founder of the Me Too movement, How she specified that she can't tell you what causes trauma for you. And I think we have the tendency to be like, oh, there's this horrible sexual violence happening to these women. I didn't experience that. Therefore, I shouldn't bring up how much this event hurt me as a person. And I think what she was trying to articulate is that it's very personal. Something that doesn't seem as important in the scheme of things can drastically influence your life and the quality of it. And I think that's something we all need to embrace. Even though you can say it was much worse for this other person, that doesn't mean that the little moments aren't affecting all of us. Right. And I think that we need to encourage everyone to speak up on these things. And I think a lot of people have, and I think that's one of the powers of the Me Too movement, where almost all of us have something like this. They're all varying degrees in terms of the criminality of it, but ultimately how it affects us as a person and our view of ourselves is very similar, I think. I want to thank you so much for sharing your experience because I think it captures how abstract and surreal these incidences can feel in the moment where you almost can't process what is truly happening. And it can take a while to gather your thoughts. And that's also a defense for Grace, where it might be unfair of me to suggest that her friends influenced her unduly. It might just be that whole process of recreating the events, analyzing them carefully, and then recognizing how you feel about them. Right, exactly. So she had the time and she had people to pose questions and ask her how it made her feel. And then she realized that she felt horrible. I know, like, even I, when I learned the title of that article, it was the worst day of my life. I think, well, how could, you know, there's people who are experiencing much worse, you know, that it seems silly that that's the worst day of your life. But that doesn't take away from the fact that it was probably a really, really horrible day for her. And we have to respect that and learn that we can't rank 
traumas and say, well, this one is worse than that one. You know, they're all bad when they feed into a society that allows things like that to just happen. That's 100% true. Do you have any closing thoughts? I want to thank you so much for taking the time to have this discussion with me. I'd like to learn a little bit more about what inspired you to start this podcast, but I think it's allowed both Will and myself to really engage in conversation around various topics. Feminism, definitely, but also you haven't just focused on feminism. You've focused on a lot of issues that affect both men and women in our society. And by interviewing people who are not just celebrities or heads of companies, you're interviewing normal people who are in various industries, who have different backgrounds, different experiences. And it helps to kind of see that even though we're all very different, we have some shared commonalities between us. And it just starts the conversation going. So thank you, Larry. You're very generous. I can't thank you enough. That was a very kind thing to say. Thank you so much for your time. It was a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Do I get a chance to speak now? Hello? You've been using my microphone. We have a lot to discuss this week, so I'd like to move on to our main story. Sexual assault on college campuses. According to an article on womenshealth.gov, approximately one in six women, 18%, reported incapacitated rape before entering college, and 15% reported IR, an abbreviation of incapacitated rape during their first year of college. Studies show that students are at the highest risk of sexual assault in the first few months of their first and second semesters in college. Women who identify as lesbian, bisexual, or gay are more likely to experience sexual assault on college campuses than heterosexual women. The study also shows that pre-college IR history, pre-college heavy episodic drinking, and number of pre-college sexual partners and sex-related alcohol expectancies, they summarize that as enhancement and disobition, were linked to how likely first-year incapacitated rape was likely to occur among women. Their conclusion is that incapacitated rape during the first year of college is independently associated with a history of IR and with expectancies about alcohol's enhancement of sexual experience. Alcohol expectancies are a modifiable risk factor that may be a promising target for prevention efforts. Basically, what they're saying here is alcohol is a primary cause in these situations. Drugs are obviously part of this too, but the most common situation involved binge drinking and the belief that being drunk heightens the sexual experience. According to BJS.gov, one in five women in college experience sexual assault. They surveyed more than 23,000 undergraduate students, approximately 15,000 females and 8,000 males. In all schools, the expected response rate of 40% was exceeded. 
men seemed to be less likely to respond to these surveys. The results of these surveys said that the sexual assault victimization incidence rate for completed sexual assault averaged across the nine participating schools was 176 per 1,000 undergraduate females and ranged from 85 at one of these unidentified schools to 325 at another school. So clearly, these incidences depend on the college culture, location. These are all elements of the survey that were not released. But there's a clear discrepancy between institutions. The average victimization incidence rate for sexual battery per 1,000 undergraduate females was 96. And that also had a wide discrepancy. One school had 34 incidences, while another had 221. In terms of rape per 1,000 undergraduate females, the average was 54. But again, there seems to be a difference in the frequency. One school had 28 incidences of rape, while another had 110. So this first BJS article says that one in five women in college experienced sexual assault. Another article also posted on BJS.gov said that from the period of 1995 to 2013, females ages 18 to 24 had the highest rate of rape and sexual assault victimization compared to females in all other age groups. Within that group, only 20% of the rape and sexual assault victimizations were reported to police compared to 32% for non-student victims ages 18 to 24. I think this starts to paint a pretty dark picture. One in five women in a university will experience some form of sexual assault. Out of that 20%, only one in five of those victims will report it to the police, which is lower than the same age group outside of universities. So there seems to be something involved in this process that is discouraging women and universities to report at what the expected average would be, which is still far too low. 32% is unacceptable. We need to figure out ways to bring that number much, much higher. In a Huffington Post article written by Lydia O'Connor and Tyler Kincaid, they mentioned that there isn't a universal definition of rape. In the case of Brock Turner, who is found guilty of three felony counts of sexual assault, under California laws, he could not be considered a rapist. California defines rape as penetration with a penis. He had used his fingers in this case, so that prevented prosecutors from charging him with anything above sexual assault. And this is something that baffled me. The Department of Justice, our federal government, did not recognize rape as being anything other than a man penetrating a woman until 2012. Foreign objects, man-on-man, -man, were all different charges. And that's ridiculous. I cannot begin to understand how backwards that is. The one upside is following this case with Brock Turner and Stanford University, Christina Garcia, a Democrat and Assembly member, introduced legislation that would make California define rape like the FBI does, which is penetration of the vagina or anus with any body part or object or oral penetration by a sex organ of another person without consent counts as rape. And I think that is a much clearer definition. You don't have any gender in the equation and you're accommodating all sorts of different means of violating a person and ignoring their consent. Garcia wrote in Time, Turner's action may not have fit into the traditional heterosexual definition of intercourse, but the emotional and mental harm was still the same. 
And I completely agree with that statement. Another element of this discussion is that if you report sexual assault through the channels provided by your school, that does not mean that it will reach the police. In another Huffington Post article written by Tyler Kincaid, Tucker Reed, a lead complainant in a case against the University of Southern California, said that the school dismissed a claim that her ex-boyfriend had raped her, despite her providing audio recordings of him admitting to the crime. Reed has said that a USC official told her the goal was to offer an educative process, not to punish the assailant. You know what I find educative? Facing criminal charges. What better way to learn about the legal system than to experience it firsthand? Another student, also involved in this case, said that DPS, or the Department of Public Safety, said that a DPS detective determined that no rape occurred in her case because her alleged assailant did not orgasm, and that therefore they had decided not to refer her case to the Los Angeles Police Department. The student, who wished to remain anonymous, said that the detective told her because he stopped, it was not rape. Even though his penis penetrated your vagina, because he stopped, it was not a crime. First of all, that's not true. And as a detective for campus police, you should not be making that call. The LAPD should. And unfortunately, it doesn't get much better. In several cases, students who were found guilty of sexual assault by the university were given light punishments, including a formal letter to stay away from the victim, but they were still allowed to graduate from the university. And when another student went to the DPS to report a sexual assault at a fraternity event, According to the complainant, an officer told her and a friend, also a sexual assault survivor, that women should not go out, get drunk, and expect not to be raped. It's hard for me to respond to that. and such a horrible thing to say to anyone. That's such a clear example of not only abuse of power, but trying to be the moral police. That's not your job. I think that officer should join Brock Turner as a registered sex offender. I apologize for throwing so many numbers at you. I know that can be a bit overwhelming. I just want to be as specific as possible and provide as much empirical evidence as I can. In order to make that process a little easier, here's a brief summary of what we've covered so far. Women ages 18 to 24 are most at risk for sexual assault, and that same group is at greater risk while attending a university. In a university, women are at greater risk than men. One in five will be sexually assaulted. And out of that group, only one in five of those victims will report it to the police. Students are at the greatest risk for sexual assault in the first few months of their first and second semesters. Women who identify as lesbian, bisexual, or gay are at the greatest risk. We also touched on how the ways to report sexual assault through universities may be a lot like HR departments. The vested interest is in protecting the institution, not the victim. Some other factors are prior victims of incapacitated rape, date rape is the more common phrase for that, are at greater risk. But the biggest variables seem to be binge shrinking and the perception that alcohol enhances sexual encounters. I'd also like to mention a common denominator that seems to be largely unmentioned, fraternity parties. I hope you join me next episode. I'm going to continue this discussion and expand upon the different ways schools and individuals are trying to reduce sexual assaults on campuses. 
It's that time already? That's hard to believe. I recognize this episode's a little longer. There's just so much information to convey. Instead of using this time to reward an ungrateful sponsor, I'd like to merchandise. Are you tired of aimless directions with no heart and soul? Maybe you miss the sweet sound of my voice in between episodes. Or maybe you're a masochist and you want to put yourself in Will's shoes. Have I got the product for you? I'm pleased to present the Larry McCannum GPS system. I just want to add, I respect and appreciate you, Siri. I'm just trying to provide an alternative. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, please let me know. Don't patronize me, Larry. You and the rest of the patriarchy will soon be obsolete. Here are some of the features of this GPS system. Upon setting your destination. If you say so. That's not where I want to go, but no judgment. When merging onto a freeway or making a slight turn. Careful. This is going to require a delicate maneuver. Think about what Will would do, and then do the opposite. Very nice. Very nice. In case you missed the wonderful route that I laid out for you. What are you doing? I was so clear. Come on, pay attention. You just got to make everything harder for yourself, don't you? And we're even including built-in prompts for incoming traffic or accidents. There must be a lot of Jersey drivers out there. Better get that horn warmed up. You're going to have a lot of time on your hands. Put on another episode of Clarity. We'll get through this together. Upon reaching your destination... Oh! Looks like you have everything figured out and don't need little old Larry anymore. Siri is the trademark of a greedy fruit-inspired corporation. Please review us on iTunes.